Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Radio Free Mormon, how are you doing today? I am doing great, Bill Real. This is my favorite night of the week. It is It is my favorite night of the week, too. It is fun for us to get together with an intelligent, vibrant, funny audience uh, and to have these conversations around Mormonism and to get a few extra laughs out of it. You know, it's, you know it, it was a lot of fun at moments when we believed deeply, and it was probably really frustrating and hurtful as we deconstructed and realized it wasn't what it claimed to be. But now we get to have a little more fun with it again. Yeah, speaking of intelligent, I have to announce something intelligent I did last Wednesday in the show. I had just gotten hot off the presses, the ruling from the judge in the Gaddy case. And I was so excited about it that I totally mispronounced Kay Burningham's last name. Apparently, I said burning game throughout And I want to apologize to Kay for that. She's already given me some friendly ribbing, at least I'm choosing to believe it was friendly, about the situation. And apparently there were a lot of comments. I don't get to see the live chat from where I am. So there are people who say, hey, it's burning ham. It's burning ham. Not burning game. But I saw that the next morning and I went, oh, geez, I was saying burning game. I was so, so focused on saying burning instead of burming, right? Like Birmingham. That I went burning, and then I went. Get, I have no idea where the game came from, but I want to apologize for that. Yeah, no, we we're allowed to make mistakes. We're all human. Um, yeah, and and sometimes some of us have a little trickier name, and sometimes you know I've uh, I've been had people call me Brian instead of Bill. Um, those kinds of things happen. But, you don't look um, like a Brian. No, I. <laughs> if, you had, if you had the same face and red hair, maybe. Yeah, Brian should be a redhead, huh? You could be Brian or Daniel or something. Yeah, there we go. By the Um, way, speaking of being human, um, I did notice somebody had made a comment somewhere. I don't know that it was on this show, but somewhere where somebody who had listened to me for quite a while uh, had finally seen me probably on this show. They'd actually seen my face. And the comment was one I've heard before, which is, wow, Radio Free Mormon doesn't look anything like I would have thought. And (laughs) good or bad. Well, I don't know, but I just wanted to say for the record that I understand. And frankly, I don't look anything like what anybody thinks anybody would look like. (laughs) (laughs) I actually had to keep checking that, make sure I said that right. If you parse that sentence out, one of the reasons it's so profound is that it's actually a chiasmus. So um, when I heard Dan Witherspoon on Mormon Matters, I had a certain picture in my mind of a extremely thin, long haired, California kind of surfer dude. Yeah. And Dan Witherspoon wasn't what I was expecting. Um, I have to say, to some degree, John DeLynn did sound look a little bit like he sounded. Mm-hmm. I kind of expected a little bit of what he looked like. Um, I have no idea what people expected me to look like after years of just being a voice on a podcast. Um, Tonight, we are going to go into three different stories. I just did a bunch of ums. I try to avoid those when I record, but we did them. 
we're going to do a bunch of uh, three different stories tonight, and these have a bunch of details to them. Is there anything on your mind before we get into this? No, you pick three stories that have to do with apostles and perhaps questionable conduct that they were involved in at some point. Uh, two of these stories I'd actually heard before, but mainly just as rumors. They sort of circulate out there in rumor status, at least for me, and I wasn't really aware of the details. The third one involving um, Elder Ballard, I'd never heard of before, and I think that's interesting. I think that's the one you're going to be starting with tonight. But this gave me the opportunity to dive in and see what these stories are about, see how much we could find out about them. And even if it's not a huge expose on all three of these, at least we can deal with these three and maybe see what we can learn about them and what we can conclude happened. Yeah. Yeah. And so the first one we're going to start off with, we, we named this episode, I named this episode, you name your episodes, I kind of name mine. Sometimes we collaborate trying to come up with a catchy name. Yeah. Uh, but this one is titled Hostile Takeovers, Bailouts, and Other Backroom Deals. Uh, tonight, we're going to start with the bailout. And um, I want to start with M. Russell Ballard, and I'll give some data points. I want to pull up uh, some pictures, and let me put those up on the screen. Share. Share screen. Yeah, I like this story because it has to do with the theater. Yeah, you're a big theater guy, right? You did this back at, was this uh, BYU? Where was this that you were doing theater? University of Texas at Austin. University and of Texas. Other yeah, I remember that. I, you've told so many stories, and they're all tied to Mormonism, that for some reason my brain wanted to go to BYU. But you and here's the deal. You go to that school. Would my you? Oh, no. My <laughs> talent is such that in regular productions, I'm in the chorus. But at the local stake center, I can be the lead. Yeah, there so you I'm go. I'm in favorite church it. productions. <laughs> yes. All right. So these pictures aren't that great. The, these were the size of the photos that were available this online. Is the Kennedy assassination or something? This is. This is fun. Is this? He, he moved. He moved to the front and to the left, and so the shot had to have been coming from back here. There was nobody in the grassy knoll. Elder Ballard. No, Elder Ballard was on the grassy knoll. I think. Is this it what you're saying? Is, this, this is, is a huge bombshell <laughs> you've got for us tonight. I hadn't seen this before. No. Yeah. So this is the uh, this is the Ballards. They him and his dad Russ. Now you remember, grandfather was Melvin J. Ballard, and. Melvin Jay's got his own little miracle story. If you remember this, this was the genealogy story where somehow a newspaper had made it across the ocean in like three days. And it's like a 11 day trip for anybody else in the world. But the three Nephites brought the newspaper to Melvin Ballard and he ended up uh, getting some genealogy that he needed access to when they were, I don't know, dedicating the temple or doing something. But the his son, Russ Ballard, and his grandson, M. Russell Ballard, owned uh, Russ Ballard's uh, auto shop, uh, auto sales. And so they sold cars. And uh, the Ballards, now again, part of this, and we're going to be doing this all night long, there are, to a large extent, places where we need to be clear that these are allegations and, and not, uh, not us knowing for sure what happened. But I've heard from multiple sources, RFM that the Ballards uh, over the years gave general authorities free cars. I've also heard the same about the Larry H. Miller group, that they supply many general authorities, especially the top 15, with free vehicles. Um, and so that kind of starts off the story, and that's a lot of conjecture because I don't have a source for that. But uh, the second thing that they the Ballards decided to do is they decided to invest in a building and I couldn't find any pictures of the outside structure, but it is the Valley Music Hall. And I was telling you this morning that in California, 
somebody built a place called the Valley Music Center. And what they did was they built a mound of dirt and they poured concrete over this dome dirt shape and then made a dome out of concrete in the form of over top of that dirt. And then they lifted that up to the top of the building. And that was the first, uh, I think, solid concrete domed building built out here in the United States. And um, I think the Ballard's place was the third one, if I'm not mistaken. And they essentially followed kind of that same uh, way of doing things. And they named it very similar too. So instead of the Valley Music Center, it was the Valley Music Hall. Hmm. And um, I don't know when this opened, but I think it, we're talking about 1960, if I'm not mistaken. Does well, that sound about it, right to you? I think it ran from 65 to 70. Okay. So 65, it opens. And uh, in 68, I was thinking they had the Beatles there, but you said it was the Monkees. Yeah. Um, in fact, oh, it is the Monkees because here I've got the uh, – here it is. So you were right. They were just monkeying around. We're the monkeys and we just monkey around. Ooh, we're too nice. busy singing to let anybody down. There they are. Can you name all four of them? Uh, chimpanzee, uh, bonobo, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Michael Nesmith, Davy Jones, uh, Peter Tork, and Mickey Dolenz. Yeah, believe it or not, I watched the monkeys all the time as a kid growing up, their TV show. By the it way, was, I didn't Google that beforehand, just so everybody knows. Good for you. You you always are nailing these uh, these obscure information points that people kind of think they might know, but they don't, and you know it. It's the monkeys. It's the monkeys. Uh, but yeah, they did a, a filming of a movie there, and they did a set of songs, and so it was kind of a cool moment for people in Salt Lake City to have access to these uh, these TV stars slash sort of rock stars, right? Can you go back to that picture at the top? Because there's an interior shot. This is like this is a theater in the round. You can see that uh, at the Valley. I'm sorry, I've got the wrong page here because we've got three stories. The Valley Music Hall, yeah, at North Salt Lake City. It's bountiful. Um, they've got a theater in the round at the time from 1965 to 1970. And I'm not trying to take away your your story, but uh, I understand that Elder Ballard, currently acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, uh, was instrumental and getting funding together in order to build this theater. Yeah, the, the Wikipedia page and other sources, by the way, the sh story is told a little bit inside this Paul H. Dunn book, which somebody lent me. So we'll read from that a little bit later as well. Um, but uh, the Ballards, Russ and his son, M. Russell Ballard, current president of the 12, as you mentioned, uh, decided to start this investment to get this thing built. And so they, uh, procure investors and people who, you know, have made a commitment to them either financially or otherwise to get this thing up and running. And so they get it up and running. It, it starts, as you point out, 1965. But by the time we get to, you know, 68, the monkeys are there. And at that point, it starts winding down. They're not really making much money off it. It's not doing well at all. Uh, there's a fire in the building. And as you pointed out from the picture we've got on the screen, um, the stage is in the middle and the seating is all around the stage, which means that 75% of the audience at all times isn't seeing the action from the front of the show. And it makes it really kind of, you know, people can turn around like the singer, the lead singer can go face the other side, but you're essentially most of the program not getting a good view of the people that you paid to see. 
Well, that's part of the challenge of having theater in the round is to do your performance in such a way as to play to everybody all the way around you. Either yeah. that or you can just sort of uh, block off the seats behind and just perform to the front. But the whole purpose of having it this way is to allow everybody to be all the way around it. You can provide more seats, but it does present its own challenges when it comes to staging. Yeah. And so this place wasn't successful at, towards the end. It started losing money. Uh, there's There was a fire. Um, the stage wasn't built right. And I just had somebody come in today, a listener of the program, that said that the building had a serious asbestos issue as well that had to be dealt with later and was quite costly in renovating. But what the important part here is that Elder Ballard, um, and I want to get the year right, Elder Ballard was called to the first quorum of the 70 in April of 1976. And... Um, in joint with him being called in as uh, a member of the 70, uh, he promised all of these investors that backed him and his dad in this project, he promised them that they would get their investment money back, that they would not lose money uh, in the project. So about the exact same time that he's called into the first quorum of the 70, uh, the church, the LDS church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, buys the building buys this Valley Music uh, Hall from the Ballards, essentially bailing them out. And I'm going to say allegedly, but at the very minimum, we understand that at the same time he's being called in as to some degree an authority in the church, the church buys this building, which was not making money. It had had damage from a fire. It had other issues that were going to have to be taken care of, as well as having this, set of, this stage in the middle that was going to make it difficult for it to thrive with any kind of um, conferences or uh, any kind of performances that were going to take place. And so I had a few pictures here of um, Ballard stuff. So I gave you the the vehicle one. Let's skip through here. Tell us, uh, do you know much about the Edsel's uh, RFM? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know it was a huge flop, kind of like the Valley Music Hall. <laughs> Everything Elder Ballard touches turns to gold. <laughs> so the Edsel's were a car that was supposed to be the cool thing in the Ballard's Auto uh, decided to take on this line of cars. And as you point out, they did not do too well. No, and I love the story that Elder Ballard tells about it because he went all in on Edsel's at his car dealership because it was gonna be the big thing. It tanked, of course, but the way he tells the story is, is that even when he was thinking about doing it, he's on the cusp of going all in on selling Edsel's, the Holy Ghost, Bill, the Holy Ghost told him, don't do it. Those Edsels are going to be a flop. And he didn't listen. He did not listen to the Holy Ghost and it flopped. And this is a lesson about why it is you should always listen to the Holy Ghost before you go all in on Edsels. And, and when you understand how the rest of his life turned out, maybe, maybe it was the Holy Ghost sending him down the wrong road. Do you know that paradigm, right? Where I've heard about that. He went down the wrong road in an Edsel. <laughs> Talk about that's a bad scene when you're going down the wrong road in an Edsel. But he ended up being in the quorum of the 12, and that's a good thing. By the way, have you already hit the fact that um, the amount of donations to build this theater in 65 was $750,000? No, I didn't know anything about that. Yeah, I did a little research, but $750,000, um, a lot more value to $750,000 back in 1965 than today. So it was, it was bought, it was paid for, it was erected, and then it just didn't work out, and apparently... Not only, you know, when you invest in something as an investor, um, you not only hope to get your investment back, you hope to get something 
I don't know, on top of it, that hence the word investment, right? Yeah. But I guess that wasn't going to be working out either. And so there's a fire and now it's going, oh, kind of, you know, the way of the Edsel, this theater is. And the church, the church steps in and buys the theater. And bails so, them out, yeah. Right. It has the effect of bailing out not only Russell and Ballard, but also all the people who donated, right? Because he's able to pay them back their money with the money the church paid to buy the building. And the the thought that occurred to me right before we went to uh, airtime is that we know this must have helped Elder Ballard out, but it also helped out the people who donated. And the one thing we don't know is who was on that list of donors. Yeah, we don't, do we? We don't know if there were any church leaders on that. We don't know who uh, was giving over cash. So we don't know who the church bailing out this thing, who that money went back to repay. Right. And of course, we all know that um, M. Russell Ballard, the M is for Melvin, just like mm -hmm. his granddad, Melvin. Yeah. And uh, he is, well, he's church royalty. We've got Ballard. You think about his granddad being an apostle. He was an apostle, wasn't he? Melvin Ballard. I'm pretty sure he was. Yeah, I think so. He, he was of some note. But also, I'm pretty sure that on the uh, his mother's side, it could be his father's side. But anyway, uh, he goes back to um, Hiram Smith. Isn't that correct? Yeah. And in fact, I was just looking up Melvin J. Ballard. It was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Um uh, I don't have the years here, but yes, he was an apostle. And say that last part again. Oh, that he he traces his line back to Hiram Smith. Yeah, I think so. And, and also, uh, one of the Ballard's daughters, one of M. Russell Ballard's daughters, uh, Elder Ballard, his daughters married uh, one of the children in the Huntsman family. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's, you know, there's, there's some information there too. Not necessarily anything scandalous, but at least uh, some wealth there in that family. Right. And as I thought about this story, I think we both agree that of the three stories, this is probably the least bombshelly of them yeah. because of the information that we have. But the good side of it is, I mean, first off, this whole thing could go down the tubes. The church could actually need a building. They could actually need a building for church purposes. So they think, oh, this is a good time to buy this building. So they buy it. Everything's on the up and up. And then they turn it into what is now called the Bountiful Regional Center. And they had to remodel it. And I think they remodeled it in 1989. They took that center stage. They took it out of there. I mean, the theater in the round. And they put it back. They made it more like a normal stage. So this is like a regular theater now uh, with a stage on one end and all the seating facing the stage is how it's been remodeled to be. I don't. It's Events happen there. Uh, I don't know how often it's used. I get the sense that uh, it's not used that frequently, but I could be wrong. What's your information on that? And the same thing that I've seen some advertisement for like a steak Thanksgiving social. Um, I've seen um, uh, them use some mention of using it for a conference here or there, but essentially that there it, it is lightly used. Um, it really has not been a moneymaker, and the church, when it took on this project, took on something that needed major work. As you point out, it had to have the stage put at one end. 
um, there was fire damage that when the church bought the building, uh, there was some damage from a fire that occurred there. Uh, again, my guy this morning came in and said, hey, I need to tell you some additional information. I'm close to this situation. There was a ton of asbestos. Uh, the, the building was had asbestos as part of the normal construction uh, in the 60s and 70s. And the cost to, he said, the cost to uh, do the asbestos abatement was essentially about the same price that the church paid for the building, whatever that was. So um, certainly some costs went into this. But as you point out, this is the weakest of the three stories. And uh, I don't really have a ton more to add. We can certainly go to the next one. But it does at least show a little bit of what looks a little funny. It looks a little funny. And I think the furthest I would go in making a conclusion about this based on the information that I have is that it was a very fortunate uh, coincidence that at the same time, this uh, Valley Music Hall was having financial difficulty and even a fire that the church was interested in purchasing it to make a uh, regional center for church meetings, which apparently isn't used that much, at least today. So that was very fortunate for Elder Ballard. It was very fortunate for all the investors who pointed up the original 750000 to build it. And it does seem strange. There weren't any other buyers flying forward to throw money at this thing and take it over. It seems like it had some issues trying to put butts in the seats. And, uh, and the church is the odd person who comes along to buy it. At the same moment, Ballard becomes uh, essentially a general authority. Yeah, and can I say one thing? And honestly, I'm not. I'm not trying to insinuate anything here, honestly. But <laughs> why is it that's always these buildings and businesses that are having financial trouble that end up having a habit of catching fire? Uh, yeah, when I lived in Ohio, <laughs> I'm with you. When I lived in Ohio, a restaurant in town that was so good for so many years it started to struggle and suddenly uh it caught on fire and uh, it ended up being the owner of the restaurant who got uh, arrested and charged with uh arson and whatever other charges come along with doing it to your own property uh for insurance you obviously some type of fraud for trying to take advantage of the insurance and be able to get out of the restaurant business cleanly right mm -hmm. maybe so, yes, it seems strange right at the end that fire comes along I was going to say, maybe their fire department is too good there in Bountiful, and they got there too quick. They got there too quick, and they saved the paintings off the wall, remember? <laughs> yes. The, yeah. So that's all I've got on this one. And so now I'll turn it over to you because I needed you for this one uh, in a big way. This was a major legal case that I couldn't quite decipher, and I didn't want to say the wrong thing. So uh, will you take us through the story of Quentin Cook? And actually, this is the most interesting of the three to me. Okay, so I have heard for years about Quentin L. Cook, currently in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and some dealings which were perhaps suspect that he had involving hospitals and healthcare in San Francisco back in the 1980s. Never really looked into it. I know there's lots of allegations around, but here's basically what happened, is that Elder Cook is a lawyer, or at least he used to be in a former life. He was a lawyer like so many of the great general authorities of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Huh. I wonder why that is. Because they're the most righteous among us. Hmm. On average, not all of us, right? Okay, but anyway, anyway, so at the time, okay, here's what it is. At the time, he is, well, let's start off with, there is a public 
entity. There's a public hospital, all right, and it's in Marin County, and it's the Marin Healthcare District, all right. So the Marin Healthcare District has a hospital and all the things that go along with the hospital. It's run by a public entity, and what they decide they want to do is they want to lease it to a private nonprofit for 30 years. So the private nonprofit can then run it for 30 years. And the idea is that this is provided for by statute and code sections. In other words, these public entities, such as this hospital, are allowed to be leased out in this manner. It's generally understood that it's a positive thing. It helps it be competitive. So all of that is good. The problem is, is that the chief executive officer, the CEO for the district, and I'm going to call it the district because it's the Marin Healthcare District, and they end up selling it to the private nonprofit, which is called Marin General Hospital. So you can see how quickly, oh, hello, there we are, right yeah, there. Wonderful. There the Marin General Hospital. So the Marin General Hospital is this, this nonprofit, the, the, the privately run entity that the district, the public district, leases it to in order to run it for 30 years. There's a 30-year lease. Okay. I hope that much is clear. It's not a big deal, right? This happens back in 1980, 1985. So the problem is twofold. The first problem is that the chief executive officer for the district, for the public entity, right, is a fellow named Henry J. Berman, B-U-H-R-M-A-N. Henry J. Berman is the CEO for the public entity, the district, okay? The one who's making the lease and leasing it out to Marin General Hospital, all right? The private nonprofit. Okay, so having said that, the problem is, is that Berman, the CEO for the public entity, is also the CEO for the nonprofit in 1985, at the time they're leasing these things. So you've got the same CEO for the public entity that has that owns the hospital who's leasing it out to Marin General Hospital, the nonprofit for 30 years, and the same guy, Berman, is the CEO of both entities. Okay, that's a problem. That's a problem. What makes it interesting for purposes of our audience is that Berman is not the only individual who held a position in both entities at the time that the lease was signed. Who, there, who was the other guy? Well, there was the, the lawyer. One of the lawyers, <clears throat> one of the famous lawyers, um, was Quentin L. Cook. And he was a lawyer for the public entity, the district. At the same time, now he's a lawyer for Marin General Hospital, the private. And so while this negotiation is going on, for the leasing and how much the lease is going to be and all the terms and everything that you can imagine would go into a lease. I imagine very detailed involving a hospital for 30 years. We have the same attorney negotiating, representing both parties. That, that doesn't normally happen, does it? Well, it's not supposed to because it's unethical. All right. This is a conflict of mm. interest for an attorney to do this. And I want to come back to that here in a second. The reason I know enough details about this is because what ends up happening, this happens in 1985. Everything, I guess, is okay. Nobody's really objecting. It goes along for 12 years to 1997, or actually 1996. But people start noticing that the hospital 
is not being run very well. There are claims in newspapers that it's $46 million in debt. There is a, a doctor who works for the hospital. Let me get this, uh, this newspaper report here from 1996, okay? So this is 11 years later. Sorry, I'm having to scroll down past this very lengthy opinion, which I'll get to. So this is from uh, Stephanie Hiller, who was the editor of the Bodega Bay Navigator. She writes this article. By the way, Bodega Bay, does that sound familiar to anybody? No. So tell me who that is. But I also want to add the comment just below you there. Notice that uh, Josh what? Kim is telling us that Quentin Cook was Elder Holland's mission companion. And I remember hearing that somewhere else, but I'm just now because of Kim's comment reminded of it. Really? Well, that's interesting because my yeah. mission companion is now a member of the 70. Look at that. So, you know, it can happen. Um, <laughs> but no, this is Bodega Bay, the birds. You ever see the birds 1963 Hitchcock film that was filmed in Bodega Bay? At least the exteriors were. OK, anyway, uh, that's my little Bodega Bay thing. But this gal, this lady, excuse me, this editor, Stephanie Hiller, for the Bodega Bay Navigator in 1996, writes an article that's talking about the hospital and how it is. It's October 16th, 1996. So it gets reprinted in the Albion Monitor. But regardless, uh, she has a couple of comments here in here. First is Marin General Hospital was sold to uh, CHS. And honestly, I'm not exactly sure what the CHS is supposed to be referring to, though it's obvious it's this story was sold to CHS in 1985. It is now 46 million in debt, okay? And then she quotes this doctor. That's where I was going to. According to Dr. Norman Kerrig, who has been with the hospital for 36 years. So he'd been there long before this, um, this lease in 1985 and now for 10 or 11 years afterward. This is his quote. The quality of patient care is at its nadir now, which is what doctors say for low point. It's at its nadir now. Part of the blame, he goes on, part of the blame can be placed upon managed care, but Kerrig places the rest of the blame on CHS, the people who bought it or leased it, which he says has siphoned millions of dollars to its San Francisco offices. The And then he goes, then this article goes on to mention our hero. The author of what Kerrig, the doctor, the author of what Kerrig calls Marin's lessee-friendly lease, the author of the lease, was the hospital district's attorney, Quentin Cook. See, he made the headlines. Who became the lawyer for the privatized hospital. See, it's already there. So the author of this lessee-friendly lease was the hospital district's, that's the public entity, right? The district was the hospital district's attorney, Quentin Cook, who became the lawyer for the privatized hospital. He was also the CEO of CHS at the time of the merger. Okay. So I'm going to try and parse through this a little bit, but mainly what it is, is Quentin Cook is in this article because he was the person who this article says authored the lease, who drafted the lease. And of course, that's what he would be doing as the attorney. That would be normal. The thing that's not normal is that he is on both sides of the negotiations between the people leasing it out and the people who are leasing it from, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So let's go to this, um, uh, this case, because what happens is that was a 1996 article. People are starting to get upset. The next year, 1997, the district 
files a lawsuit because they want out of this lease. They want this lease gone. They want the hospital and everything that they have leased out, uh, the assets, the equipment. Uh, they want it back. So they're looking to void this lease. And what they decide they're going to do is they're going to say, hey, the CEO was the same guy who signed the contract, right? Same guy for the public entity, same guy for the private entity, the lessee and the lessor. That's wrong because that does violate California statute. And it makes sense, right? If you're going to have an officer who is on or represents a public entity, then he doesn't get to be making decisions in which he could have a financial interest or she could have a financial interest. In this case, it's a he. And that applies to CEOs as well as lawyers. You can't be doing that and not violate the statute. So they're going to say, this thing's void. This whole lease is void. We want it back. So a case is filed. It uh, goes to trial court and then it is appealed. And what ends up happening, just to cut to the chase, is that they end up not reaching the issues involved because the decision is that the statute of limitations has expired for the public district to bring a challenge to the lease itself. And that is mostly what this opinion deals with. They end up finally saying, no, nah, no matter how you look at it, if it was this, it was one year statute of limitations, that's long gone. If it was this, it was four year statute of limitations, that's long gone. And even if it was a real estate transfer, which it's not, it's a lease, that would be 10 years. And even that is expired by now. So you're out. But in the details of this opinion, which by the way, the case is called Marin Healthcare District versus Sutter Health. Can I just say something about Sutter Health? Okay, so follow me closely as I do the shell game. Marin Healthcare District, the district, the public entity, leases Marin General Hospital, right? Leases the hospital to Marin General Hospital. So that's the first thing that happens. That's what we've been talking about. That happens in 1985. I'm sorry, I'm not going to try and take the entire show doing this. I apologize. Oh, I, I think this is a confusing case, and I'm glad you're taking a moment to explain it. Okay, thanks. Subsequent to that, during the period of the lease, and pretty early on, the Marin General Hospital gets reformed into, or taken over by, or renamed, or put into another group called Sutter Health. S-U-T-T-E-R. Sutter Health. And guess who the CEO of Sutter Health is? Hmm. Who could it be? It's Quentin L. Cook. Okay. Hmm. So he ends up being the lawyer for the district when it is leased to uh, Marin General Marin General Hospital, and he's also the lawyer for Marin General Hospital when they're negotiating the lease. And then the hospital gets reformed into Sutter Health, and he's the CEO of Sutter Health. So he's rising in the world. Yeah. So. Um, he's on the board for the public entity, which, uh, is operating a hospital. We're talking about cook. Yes. Yeah. I think he's on, I don't know if he's on the board. He may be, but he's definitely their attorney. Yeah. And he, uh, essentially also represents this other entity, which is a private for-profit entity right. that forms a connected a connection or a lease with uh the public entity 
And obviously, as you're pointing out, there's some deep ethics involved in representing both sides of a of an agreement or representing both parties in some legal situation. Mm-hmm. And then now you're going to tell us kind of what you, you already said, like they've had some trouble, the Marin hospital, but some of that, that kind of fallout that came from this. Yes. So let me see here. Um, I wanted to go through this opinion and read a few things, but I'm Please. afraid it'll get to, well, uh, this opinion, I'm not reading all of it, believe me, certainly not the statute of limitations stuff, but they have a number of facts that are contained in the opinion, mm. which are very helpful to understanding on to understanding what was going on. So let me go quickly, only because I think I've covered this, but this is so you can know that what I'm talking about is correct. In or about November 1985, pursuant to the, those statutory provisions, the ones that allow for the leasing, the district... They're going to call it the district, so it's not as confusing as if they're saying Marin Healthcare District and Marin General, right? The district, the public entity, leased the hospital's facilities and transferred certain of the district's assets used in the operation of the hospital, including cash, accounts receivable, and inventory, to defendant Marin General, a nonprofit public benefit corporation, okay? Uh, Whatever it is they want to call it. It's going to be operated by them. The relevant agreements included a 30-year lease agreement and an agreement for transfer of assets. Marin General has continuously operated the hospital facility since 1985. Once again, this is written in 2002. That uh, lease has obviously expired. As of right now, today is October 11th, 2021 for the record. At the time the 1985 contracts were entered, the district's chief executive officer was Henry J. Berman. That's the district. However, while Berman was still employed as the district's chief executive officer, he became president and chief executive officer of Marin General and signed the 1985 contracts on behalf of Marin General. Two of the district's directors executed the contracts on the district's behalf. Now, this part's underlined because I underlined it. Moreover, the district's legal counsel, Quentin L. Cook, became legal counsel to Marin General before the 1985 contracts were executed. So this isn't something where he's with the district and then he negotiates and then later becomes counsel for Marin General. No, according to this opinion and... Judges tend to try and be very accurate with their presentation of the facts. No, he's representing both entities at the time of the negotiations themselves. And the opinion goes on. And when Marin General later combined to form another healthcare entity, that's Sutter Health, Cook became chief executive officer of that entity. That's all from the opinion. Then it goes on. In November 1997, now this is the 12 years later, right? Nearly 12 years after the 1985 contracts were signed, the district filed the instant action, that means this case, against Marin General and the affiliated co-defendants, Marin Community Health, et cetera, Health, et cetera. Um, The operative complaint alleges, this is the complaint that alleges that at the time the 1985 contracts were entered, Berman, that's the CEO, Berman's and Cook's, that's Quentin L. Cook's, the lawyer, simultaneous employment by Marin General and the district created a prohibited financial interest in those contracts within the meaning of government code section 1090. 
That statute prohibits state, county, district, and city officers or employees from being financially interested in any contract made by them in their official capacity or by any body or board of which they are members. Okay, if you'll hang on just a second here. Oh, you're still muted. <clears throat> Better. And because the 1985 contracts were purportedly made in violation of government code section 1090, the complaint alleges that the contracts are void under government code section 1092. Okay, so that's the complaint, right? If they're going to end up saying statute of limitations, sorry, it's too late, it's gone, you missed the boat. So we're going to dismiss your case. But, but I think you can understand why it is that a person who's an employee of a public entity, right? whether you're a CEO or a lawyer, that you cannot then be financially interested in any contract made by them in their official capacity. I mean, that, that would be called graft or corruption. And that, that's why there's a statute that exists on the books in California, probably in every state in the union, that if you're an employee or an officer for a public entity, for a government entity, you can't be making contracts or entering into deals where you have a financial interest in them. Yeah, so let me just ask you two questions. You having read the case, yeah, you sense that there is a deep conflict in int of interest in him representing both the public and private entity and forming leases and negotiations of how assets or wealth will be shared between the two, correct? Right. And actually, I'm going to get to that here in a second. Right now, I'm saying it's a violation of the law. Gotcha. For the CEO, as well as um, Quentin L. Cook. Um, and now going down to, I think it's page 12 I want to go to. By the way, 12 is just the numbering system on my document. It's not going to reflect what it looks like in any reporter of the case. But let me go to 12 really quick. Um, here we go. Let me just read this one line because this is very important. They have a limited record in front of them, right? Because this didn't go to trial at the trial court. It went to trial. There was a trial level and then it was appealed, right? And at the trial level, there wasn't a trial. Instead, there was a motion made that this be dismissed because of statute of limitations. The trial judge granted it. It got appealed by the district and the court of appeals uh, sustains the trial court and says, sorry, you're out of luck. So there wasn't a trial. So the record on the appellate level is limited. They don't have all the a bunch of witnesses testifying and a bunch of exhibits they can look at as part of the record. But this is what they say. Based on the limited record before us, it is undisputed that Berman and Cook worked simultaneously for the district and Marin General before the 1985 contracts were executed in November 1985. That's the key line in the opinion uh, as far as what we're talking about tonight. So apparently it's undisputed. They're saying it's a limited record, but it appears to be undisputed. Nobody ever disputed it. And I would think that they would have disputed it if they could have disputed it, since that's what the whole lawsuit is about. So, uh, but 
Quentin L. Cook work simultaneously for the district and Marin General. Now, that is a violation of the law there in California, but it was too late to bring an action to get rid of the lease. But there's a separate thing that's going on because Quentin L. Cook was a lawyer. And lawyers are bound by certain rules of ethics. They're supposed to be bound. And the rules of ethics are commonly called the rules of professional conduct. That's what they're called where I practice. It's also what they're called in Utah. And rule 1.7 and 1.8, but 1.7 is the main rule that deals with conflicts of interest. And this situation that um, Quentin, I almost said Melvin, Quentin L. Cook was involved in is a classic conflicts of interest case. This isn't even difficult to spot as a conflict of interest because when we talk about interest, I'll give you the real brief lowdown, okay? This will be your CLE for this week. Conflict of interest, when you're an attorney and you are representing a client, that means that you have to protect your client's interests, all right? That's the whole deal. Your client's interests are number one. It's the first thing, it's the last thing, it's the only thing with you know certain exceptions, which there always are in the law, but that's the main rule, right? So you can't be doing something that contravenes your client's interests if you're a lawyer. Now, having said that, there are situations that could arise where you might have a conflict of interest and lawyers always have to be aware of that. If I am representing an entity that is leasing something to somebody else or is involved in any kind of negotiations or contracts or whatever. If I'm an attorney who's representing this party, who's leasing something over here to this party, I can't be the lawyer over here who's representing this party as well. I can't be representing both parties because what in terms of the negotiations for this lease, what is good for the district in negotiating the lease is going to be bad for um, Marin General, right? Anything that's favorable for the district is going to be unfavorable for Marin General and vice versa. Anything that's good for Marin General is going to be bad or unfavorable for the district. That much is a no-brainer, right? Are you there, Bill? I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, you? I'm with you. I'm shaking okay. my head. Yeah. Okay, I just can't see you. I'm sorry. I'm playing to the camera right now. Um, so... That's, that's why it's called a conflict of interest, because now you have to represent this person and this person, and you cannot represent this person and protect their interests when you're representing this person and you're supposed to be protecting their interests because these two people have conflicts of interest and any attorneys representing both of those entities is going to have a conflict of interest as well. This is something that this is very basic. This would be uh, anything that any first year law student would be able to answer. Sometimes conflicts can be out there in the weeds. They can be more um, uh, nuanced. They can be a little harder to spot. But every attorney has situations where they're confronted with this. And sometimes they have to say, no, I'm sorry, I can't represent you. For instance, um, there's a, okay, a divorce lawyer in the building. And I did divorce law for like three years. I figured I had enough experience since I'd been divorced twice. But then I got out of it because I didn't like it really. But let's say there's two people, they're going to get divorced, right? And the husband calls the law office and says, hey, I'd like for you to represent me in this case. And this is what the case is about, right? 
And the attorney says, okay. And the husband says, okay, I'll get back to you, right? And then the husband goes and hires some other attorney. That happens. Does that make sense so far? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now the wife calls the same law office, right? And says, hey, I'm the wife of this guy and I need a lawyer for my divorce. Well, now the attorney says, I'm sorry, I can't represent you because I already talked to the other guy. This is how strict the rules of professional conduct are or can be with regard to conflicts of interest. Mm. So you cannot represent, and a divorce is a classic example because there's a husband, there's a wife, they're getting divorced, and you can't be representing both the husband and the wife in a divorce because what's good for one, what's in their interest is going to be bad for the other or against their interests. So the same thing goes with any kind of negotiation. And this is a classic instance what Quentin L. Cook was doing, at least as I read it, I'll put it out there as a very basic, very obvious, very uh, severe breach of ethics by representing both entities in negotiating a lease. And it may have something to do with why it was perceived by some people, though I'm not going to weigh in on the truth of this, but some people definitely perceived that this was a very friendly lease to Marin General that they got from the county. And of course the stage was all set for them to get a very favorable lease because you've got the same people who are on both sides negotiating with themselves. What, how did Cook make out from all these deals? How did his financial situation seem to go from playing both sides of this? Well, I don't know. There's lots of allegations out there. I don't have enough information. This thing didn't get litigated because of the statute of limitations. So it wasn't developed with facts in that regard. So I don't know. All I can tell you is that my, my understanding would be that being a lawyer for a hospital, first off, you're up there, you're doing good financially. And then later on, when Marin General uh, becomes renamed or incorporated into Setter Health and uh, Quentin L. Cook becomes the CEO, not just the lawyer for Setter Health, but the CEO of Setter Health, which is now owning this hospital and perhaps other things as well. Now you're talking even a better financial situation. Like he did, he, yeah, that's my point, is that he served in the capacity of his employment at being at the top uh, of the food chain of this Sutter Health. And if I'm not mistaken, over overseeing multiple facilities. Wasn't there some? Oh yeah, there there were there were more than one facility. It was uh, it supervised or ran different hospitals. I believe. So it would feel safe to assume that his pay that he got uh, dramatically. Again, I'm assuming I'm I'm, I'm alleging here uh, that his pay would have gone up drastically from his original position that he was serving with the public entity to the position he served with the Sutter Health uh, Group towards the end of his time in this whole thing. That would be a reasonable inference to draw. Yeah. And so him uh, operating in what seems to be an unethical space of having this conflict of interest and representing this public entity and also this other entity that's a private entity that, and they form all these agreements. And again, Marin Hospital, uh, the, the public entity, got into a bunch of financial trouble over this time. And by the time it was all said and done was in some serious debt. Um, and as you also pointed out, because of this legal case, the public that owned this hospital at some point files this suit trying to unravel all of this because it's not working well for them. 
Right. It was out of extreme frustration, I think, on the part of the district and the people that um, the hospital is supposed to serve and the doctors who work at the hospital that this lawsuit was filed in the first place, even though too late. Yeah. And so in the YouTube notes for this episode, this this live stream that we're doing, there are resources, multiple links for each of the three stories that we're sharing. I also put all of these links into the comments. Uh, so those would have been posted on any of the Facebook feeds where this is. Uh, right when we started this story, as well as when we started the Ballard story, we shared the Ballard links. And we'll do the same for this last one. Um, any other thoughts here on Quentin Cook? It does seem interesting, right, that this this guy does this thing and it works out well for him. And then when people try to uh, take action against it, the the, the time frame is essentially expired. The uh, Again, tell me the, the phrase for statute of limitations. limitations expires. So there's nothing that can be done, but it appears as though he acted unethically. And then after all of that, he becomes a special witness of Jesus Christ. Right. Yeah. And, and it's this kind of stuff. I'll say this here. I won't save this for the end and I won't tell the story RFM because we promised the person not to, but you and I have had conversations with other people who have uh, had stewardship for an apostle or for the son of an apostle, for example. And you and I both communicated to, to people who have told us other stories, but they're just not ready to come forward. And so you and I have to hold these and not break that confidentiality. But the reason we're having this conversation tonight is because last week you poked some deep holes in the integrity of the Quorum of the Twelve by pointing out that they knew that Nelson wasn't honest as the president of the Twelve, and then they still sustained him as prophet of the church. And what I want the audience to understand is that you and I have conversations off to the side away from this program where you and I are aware of these stories. We're aware of ones that the public is not aware of. And what begins to become clear is the church wants a narrative that these are good men whose motives are absolutely pure. They are special witnesses of the Lord and Savior himself, Jesus Christ. And they are called as apostles or um, members of the First Presidency, which, is, as you pointed out last week, are still apostles uh, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And the reality, away from that narrative, is that many of these men, and maybe all of them, but many of these men seemingly have compromised their integrity on multiple occasions throughout their life and have had deals done where the church has bailed them out or done them a favor and the loyalty and the nepotism in this system runs very deep. Yes, and I'm glad that you have this image up here, which has multiple newspapers, because it's important to realize that even though 1985 is 36 years ago, that was when the lease occurred. And 1996 is still, what, 25 years ago, when all this starts bubbling up and results in the lawsuit. This was a big deal in the Bay Area. And there was a lot of press about it. There was a lot of commentary about it and uh, a lot of ink used in describing this. So this was a big deal. And if you were around then, if you're uh, reading the papers or trying to use the hospital or a doctor in the hospital, you're totally aware that this huge controversy is going on. This was a big deal about how this hospital was being run and how many felt it was being run uh, negligently, mismanaged, and allegations, like I say, of siphoning off money were were rampant. I can't speak to that. I'm not saying that's true, 
I'm just saying that when it's running a $46 million debt, people tend to get antsy. Yeah, especially if it was. And and the word on at least somewhere that I read was that the public entity originally was doing pretty well and it was making money and it wasn't in some kind of financial hole. It wasn't like it needed bailed out. It wasn't like it was um, in a deep hole and needed something to come along and solve that. It was doing pretty well. And then all this stuff happens um, and then it's not doing well. But Quentin Cook seemingly was doing quite Yes, well. I think he did very well from this. And, it, and apparently... Uh, it paved his way to the top leadership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm not sure if President Nelson really wants me to be using the full name of the church when I'm talking about things like this, but I do want to honor his wishes and use the full name. <laughs> we don't want to give a victory to Satan tonight. <laughs> Are you ready for what I think is the uh, most egregious and most maybe demonstrably egregious of the three stories? Are you ready to move on to the third one? I am ready. So I'll put him up on the screen. Uh, anybody know who that is? I, I, I'll ask. He looks like somebody. Does does he look familiar to someone else we know? I don't know. And I think in this picture he's wiggling his ears. <laughs> this looks like President Monson. Well, this happens to be President Monson's, one of his sons, Thomas L. Monson. And uh, and I want to be careful here, too. So I'll try to read kind of uh, my bullet points and and talk about it from that point of view. Another lawyer, by the way. Yeah, another lawyer, Tom Monson, and I'm calling him Junior, by the way, because he shares the same first and last name of his father, but he does have a different middle name, middle initial, Thomas L. Monson. Uh, he is the son of former LDS prophet Thomas Monson. Uh, this this Tom Monson Jr., he was vice president and general counsel. So he held both a leadership position among the hierarchy of the company, as well as serving as their general counsel or legal representation. And it was for American Investment Bank, which was a subsidiary of Lucadia Corporation, which I think only because I've got stock in the company is under the Jeffries Group. And um, he was alleged to have sexually harassed a woman by the name of Jennifer Bottomley. In her lawsuit, Bottomley charged, or sorry, Bottomley claimed that Monson had become obsessed with her personally and sexually during her employment at AIB from 1990 to 1993. Bottomley said she was forced to listen to, quote, stories of the most intimate facts of his sexual relations with his wife, and he repeatedly asked about her sex life, unquote. Monson, the suit claimed, stalked her, tried to kiss her searched her belongings, listened to her conversations, and repeatedly propositioned her. He apparently also is an artist, too. Say that again? And apparently he's an artist of sorts, too. Yeah, I, I, um, yes. He, he, uh, he tried to kiss her, he searched her belongings, he listened to her conversations, and repeatedly propositioned her. He also wrote love notes and left, quote, lewd, unquote, materials on her desk. Um. I will leave everyone to to figure out what that is. But as you pointed out, he is quite the artist. You don't it have included, the drawing. Does what's it that? have the drawing that he allegedly left on her desk too? No, it would have been funny. I should have draw. I should have drew something and, and claimed that that was it. But be funny. It, was, it was supposed to be a drawing of two people uh, making the beast with two backs. Yeah, including a drawing of two people having sex according to court documents. Bottomly complained to Monson's superiors. Now, again, he's the vice president and the legal counsel, so there's not a lot of people above him. But uh, she complained to Monson's superiors and filed a complaint with the company in 1993, 
All the while, she was assured her job was secure. By the way, she gets fired. And and then this all kind of hits the fan because at that point, the I think the Equal Opportunity Equal Employment uh, Opportunity Commission yes, jumps in and begins to uh, essentially take the case from their point of view because it seems like something unhealthy and unethical is happening. So at that point, um, and to clarify there, just so you know, this was this was like uh, unprecedented in a Utah case. Up to this point, this is kind of a garden variety sec, and I don't mean to diminish it. Yeah, I don't mean to diminish this, but it's sort of a, a, a common a, something that we see quite a bit: a yeah. sexual harassment suit. But then uh, they let uh, the company lets Monson go, uh, and then September shortly 7th. after, yeah, yeah September seventh, nineteen ninety three. Okay, and then shortly after that, they fire Jennifer Bottomley. And yeah. as soon as they fire her, which really, really kind of looks like retaliation. I don't know. But <laughs> it looks like retaliation. Um, now the EEO, EEOC gets involved. Because now it looks like they're firing somebody in retaliation for being a whistleblower. And that's why they jump in with both feet. Yeah, and so in the, in the deposition... Um, Monson says he was let go for using poor judgment in his relationship with Bottomley. Bottomley claims that she was twice assured after Monson was terminated that her job was safe. Six days later, she was fired after being told in an, an internal investigation showed her claims to be groundless. And according to her complaint that her interests were different from AIB. Unquote. The alleged retaliation was one reason the Equal Opportunity, I'm sorry, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission entered the case, said Richard Trillo, and you'll need to know that name because it comes in here in another moment or two, the commission's regional attorney in Phoenix, Arizona. So um, the company. I'm sorry, I'm I'm laughing here. I apologize. But the reason I'm laughing is because there are good ways to fire somebody and then there are bad ways to fire somebody. This was a really, really bad way to fire somebody. And by bad, I mean opening yourself up to all kinds of legal liability. Even if um, she had done something in her work that was not the quality they wanted, you still got to wait a year, don't you? I don't, in that situation, I don't care what she's doing at work, okay? If she's setting fire to the draperies, don't fire her because it's going to look like retaliation. Six days after the deposition. Yeah, it was really, really uh, a bad move on management's part. But this is, you know, this is a nothing burger. It's Tom Monson's son. This would, this wouldn't even be on our radar that we'd be talking about it tonight, except that it goes a lot further. So, and they've already let, they've already let Monson go. And now they're firing her. One of the reasons they're giving for firing her was that what uh, she, her, her claims were baseless. That doesn't even make sense. When also letting Monson go and him admitting in those same depth, in that same deposition that he had probably gone too far. <laughs> so as you're pointing out, it is. yeah. So in the newspaper, we can find that the the settlement happened. The company ended up settling with Bottomley. Uh, this is the paper that it came from. I can pull up the actual settlement being mentioned. I but think you can't it might pull have... up the actual settlement. No, we can't because it seems like as always in these kinds of conversations, non-disclosure agreements do happen. Uh, Lucadia AI. That's, so, that's so that each party, when they're talking to the press, can say. That it was a satisfactory result, that they're, they're right. pleased with the way it came up. Right, exactly. And nobody gets to know the dirty details. Right. Um, Lucadia, AIF, and AIB also settled the 
intervention complaint with the EEOC agreeing not to engage in any employment practice that discriminates on the basis of sex. The companies will be required to retain a consultant to provide training sessions dealing with sexual harassment and retaliation to all of its employees, including corporate officers, management of companies, I'm sorry, uh, including corporate officers. Management of companies, particularly upper management, has an especially high obligation to implement strong, clear policies and procedures against sexual harassment and retaliation, Truillo said in the news release dated July 26th. That, uh, he said, is especially true for for attorneys like Monson. So to be an attorney, to be the legal representation of a company, and to also serve as the vice president of that company – you really have to walk the line of what is ethical and not ethical. Otherwise, anything you do can be seen under a microscope. And this seemed at least somewhat egregious because Lucadia tried to misrepresent the story, saying that the only reason the EEOC had become involved was because of the political mileage to be gained because of Monson's status as the son of a Mormon church official. But this was baseless. Trujillo, again, this is the guy from the EEOC, Trujillo scoffed at the notion. He said, quote, his name and who he is and whatever his status in the community is was not a factor in the commission's decision to seek intervention, unquote. He said Thursday, quote, what we looked at was the egregious nature of the allegations. The fact that he was a prominent member of the corporation and a lawyer was certainly a factor, unquote. So it seems as though, again, this gets settled. It doesn't go to court, but you at least have the EEOC saying this was serious. It was egregious. And this guy, because of his role in the company, this shouldn't, in a, essentially, I'm going I'm to add some words, shouldn't in a million years have happened. Right. And can I add something here? Just Please. as a part of the segue, which I know you're going to get to. Yeah. As of this point, a lawyer in Thomas L. Monson's position has made himself anathema. He is unhirable. Nobody, no law firm is going to hire this guy because he's a walking lawsuit. I mean, do we need the problems that he caused over here at this other company, this other law firm, this other banking institution where he was the lawyer? We don't need that kind of trouble because basically, apparently, this guy can't control his urges. And any female worker that we might have in this law office is a potential victim of his. And that's all we need to do is have him acting out here. And now we get a lawsuit like they got a lawsuit. So it's because of all these reasons that a person in Thomas L. Monson's position has two options because basically he's, he's unhirable. He can either now go into uh, private practice, hang out his shingle, rent his office and try and make a go of it that way. Or he can just leave the practice of law and go into another field. That is what would happen to a person normally in Thomas L. Monson's position. And is that what happened to him, Mr. Real? Um, no. Let me let me ask you before I tell everybody what did happen to him. Um, as you're pointing out, he'd be unhirable. You, you can imagine any other place he goes, any other place he goes. If they know the details of what had happened, which anybody doing their research when you're hiring somebody to be a lawyer in your firm should do, uh, you're a lawyer, RFM. You're saying he wouldn't be able to find a job anywhere. No, if I'm if I'm a manager of a law firm, I just have a solo practice here. So I don't have other attorneys who work uh, in the office. 
uh, in my office. But if I'm if I'm a manager, if I'm hiring into um, a position in a general law firm, and there are ten people who've applied, and Thomas L. Monson I see is one of the ten. Thomas L. Monson now has become 11th on that list. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He, he's yeah. not going to, he's not going to be hired. That's doesn't matter how it. good he is. doesn't matter how good he is. And you and I were talking this morning. He yeah. probably was a good lawyer because he is serving as the vice president and legal counsel for a major company. He almost assuredly was good at his job. Probably. I will give you a definite probably, although he's still president Monson's son and there are strings to be pulled, but let's say he's F Lee freaking Bailey. Okay. He's the best lawyer on the planet. I don't need a guy who's a walking time bomb, a loose cannon walking around, who has a history of harassing female employees. That's just not going to happen. Yeah, no, it's just not going to happen. Um, so I'm, I'm curious. I wonder uh, who did hire him. Did he get hired? And, uh, he did get hired. I'll put it up on the screen. Um What's that? What does that say there? What's that bottom in blue look like there? Well, it says Thomas L. Monson, Salt Lake City, Utah. Is oh, this is find a lawyer. This is the website, and it says he's in the Key Bank Tower in Salt Lake City. Oh, he works for Curtin McConkie. <laughs> he works in McConkie. So you have, you have Dad. Um, he's in the first screens. presidency. You have allegedly. You have Dad. No, he was definitely in the first presidency. That's yeah, more than he's allegedly. president. He's not prophet, seer, and revelator, <laughs> the only man on earth to hold all priesthood keys. Not yet. But but he is in the first presidency uh, with Gordon B. Hinckley and James E. Faust, right, back in the day. And uh, somehow, Thomas L. Monson, after egregious, according to the EEOC, sexual harassment of a female employee as the vice president and legal counsel for Lucadia Corp., uh, ends up working for the church's law firm. Now, I saw something else too. Let me see if I can get rid of one more. Let's get rid of this for a moment. Uh, here's Tom, here it is, Thomas Monson, practice attorney at Curtin and McConkie. And I think I sent you an image the other day that said that he was a, it lists him as a shareholder of Curtin and McConkie. And I was asking you what that might mean. I don't, I don't know. Um, but it's certainly, uh, you have to guess I have to agree to do more here to get more information. So I guess we won't do that. But um, yeah, Thomas Monson works for the church's law firm. Uh, look at that, Thomas, you got whatever his name is there, uh, you know, at kmclaw.com. You can you can hire him. I don't know if he still works there. It's been a lot of years. He probably retired at this point. Um, but it does seem like an oddball thing. You know, if this is a church that runs ethically and its law firm runs ethically, I'm going to say, at least from my point of view, knowing only what I've shared and recognizing that I want to be logical and rational, um, I'm going to say that this seems like quite a stretch to hire this guy uh, and have him on the on the payroll. It sounds kind of like nepotism. <laughs> it does. It sounds a lot like nepotism. You and I were talking this week about maybe doing an episode on nepotism, and we were, I think, in the course of a five or 10 minute section of our conversation, we threw out about 10 to 20 people who are tied to somebody uh, in the church. Elder Gong is tied to a general authority in the 70. Uh, again, Ballard ties back in here or there. You've got uh, Gordon B. Hinckley's son serving in the 70. You have uh, Thomas Monson here, his son getting the job. 
Um, you got Boyd K. Packer's son, I think, served as a 70. You've got uh, Elder Holland's kids running the schools. You've got uh, uh, Elder Iring's kid running the school. You know, it just goes and goes and goes. The, there's a lot of money to pass around. Why wouldn't you keep it in the family? No kidding. And now for uh, etymology segment for tonight's show. Okay. I almost said entomology. I always have to remember entomology is about bugs. Etymology is about words. But nepotism is related to our word nephew. N-E-P in both, right? Nephew. Except we say the F sound. Like we say Nephi when it's really nephi. Um, but nepotism. And this comes from the Catholic Church have bequeathed us this word. Because it was thought, at least in the 17th century or 16th century, it was going on a lot back then that uh, certain popes, and I'm not going to go through this entire article, certain popes were believed to be giving special positions to their nephews who were really their illegitimate sons, but they're just calling them their nephews, right? And so they would get these nice positions of power and affluence. And therefore, the word nepotism began to be used in English after that, even though the word itself is from nepote, a 17th century variant of Italian, nepote, mm. meaning nephew. So there you go. Doesn't have to be a son or daughter. It can be an in-law. And you and I, we haven't even began oh. to touch what happens when they announce a temple and who gets to find out first and who gets to buy the land around it and who gets to build the houses on it. There is a lot of stuff that goes on inside Heavenly Father's true and living church. Well, Jesus. the classic, I'm sorry, yeah, nepotism comes from nephew, but the classic example is the boss's son-in-law. Yeah. Yeah, so what What this kind of, again, we've gone through these three stories, and, and there are others, by the way. Um, uh, I mentioned to you this week, Jenny, uh, I got to remember, Jenny Oaks Baker, maybe. It's Elder Oaks' daughter. Uh, she really is an accomplished musician, but I know that there has been some rumblings about her allegedly being paid either people paying an entrance fee or um, or the stake presidency uh, paying her to come into their stake. And and um, I want to put it up here on the screen here just a moment. Mm -hmm. uh, stream yard. Yeah. So you can see here, for instance, in Switzerland, she performed at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Stake Center, when I and I, I can't prove this, but when I go to try to buy tickets for her for other things, this is bands in town, and you get tickets and more. I would find it hard to believe that you put this out to the general public and you do it free because you don't know how many people are going to show up and you can't plan for the attendance. So you do need people to come, and it was tickets and more. So in each one of these, you go and you buy tickets um, for the show. And so if, if, and I, again, I've gotten from multiple sources that she does, if she's charging admission to be for people to attend at church buildings, that's sure as hell a lot different than the way you and I uh, knew our wards and stakes to operate when we were active members of the church, correct? Right. And this always gets into this fuzzy area, right? About whether people would go see her if she were not uh, the daughter of a general authority and, you know, if people want to buy, buy the tickets, I'm okay with that. As long as it's the same price for all the tickets. I think where you get hazy and fuzzier is where all of a sudden, like, you're the president's son and he decides he's got this passion for art that he wants to 
try and make some money off of. And now he's he's doing his artwork, which actually I've seen. It's kind of impressive, but I don't know if it's impressive enough that I'd pay uh, 200, 300, 500,000 dollars for one piece. You start getting to this very, very hazy area of how much is someone paying for the painting versus how much are they paying in order to curry favor with the guy's dad. And you get into this with speaker fees. This is why it's always uh, seemed outrageous to me that people who are in politics or post-politics or wherever they are get uh, six figures just for going to someplace and giving a speech. Or $10 for a patriarchal blessing. Yes, which, <laughs> which, is, which is just obviously they're not paying for the speech. What they're paying for is it's a means of socially acceptable transfer of money. Okay, large amounts of money. So that they can do that for whatever reason they want. And just bringing this back to the beginning, it's also the same kind of idea as uh, donating cars to general authorities. If you've got a car dealership and you're donating cars to general authorities, yes, you can be doing that out of the goodness of your heart. Yes, you can be doing that because you believe the church is true. Yes, you can be doing that because you believe it's a good financial uh, decision because hopefully they'll talk to their friends and you know they'll, their friends will come in and buy cars right but there's also this other part of it which is are you doing it for all those reasons or or are you doing that in order to curry favor with people in positions of power yeah um you i've had numerous conversations with my friend chris who's also my boss here at family pond about whether these men know and it's really one of the questions that i think Every ex-Mormon asks at some point, do these men know the church isn't what it claims to be? And my argument with him, and you and I have had this conversation numerous times too, and my argument with you um, is that they do know. When I take the 20,000-foot view and I look at all the corruption, I look at all the nepotism, I see all the ways in which history is withheld, that deeply unhealthy practices continue without being allowed to be uh, removed or taken off, the times that they do switch up policies, doctrines, and pretend it came by the same loving revelation that the the unhealthy policy be, be put in place went by. When I see these folks claim that they're being transparent and these are the approved sources, when in reality the church is the worst at telling its history accurately, I'm left with, I can only think that on some level, these men are all in cahoots and they're unhealthy. And when I see these stories, like we shared tonight with Ballard, Quentin Cook, Tom Monson's son, Thomas L. Monson, what I arrive at is that these aren't necessarily good men. These are just men. And they're they're doing deals like anybody else in power and authority might be tempted to do. Not that they do, uh, and certainly not all of them, but it feels like something really unhealthy is going on here. And yet the narrative that gets presented to us, RFM, is that these are the best of men. And so I thought we would at least uh, finish up and I'll put... Um, well, before you get to that, before you get to that, I want you to, because I know what you're going to play and it's beautiful, okay? Yeah. But since this issue is coming up again, let me take my big pen and just do this, okay? And just poke my eyes out. I learned that from a, an elder at the MTC. I haven't used it in a long time. You have to be very careful when you're doing that, by the way, because it's coming up again. And all I will say in uh, respectful and courteous uh, opposition to your position yeah. is that corruption, nepotism, hiding history and gaslighting do not necessarily mean that they know that it's not true. No, but when they are setting a bar 
of Christ-like attributes and claiming to, uh, what was the quote the other day? Prophets don't lie, right? From President Nelson. Yeah, they tell and you the truth. They don't, they, yeah. And, and yet we have all these bullshit stories where they're, where President Nelson and Elder Holland and Paul H. Dunn and, you know, all these stories come out where they're just not telling the truth. And yet they set this high bar that they are uh, disciples of Jesus Christ and they try their very best to live up to that bar. And they're doing a much worse job than the rest of us. What does George Costanza say about this, Bill? What does he say when he's got it's his, not- he's leaning on one side because his wall is too big? <laughs> it's not a lie if you believe it. Yeah, it's not a lie if you believe it. There's actually a lot of uh, insight in that comment. It's a funny line, but there's a lot of insight into it. Yeah, the issue I would have is these men seem to have a justification for any bad thing they do. And it's a very different message than what the members of the church are presented with, um, which, which goes here. Some people get tangled up in the question, but are prophets, seers, and revelators infallible? I think that's the wrong question. A better one is, who exactly are prophets? They are the ordained holders of priesthood keys that authorize the Lord's power to be distributed throughout the earth. They may not be perfect, but they are the most perfectly inspired leaders on earth, and their only motive is perfectly pure to help us find our way back home by pointing us to Jesus Christ. These are the best men on planet Earth. Their motives are pure. They have the purest of intentions. And yet over and over and over again, we show these men to be unethical, to be uh, deceptive, to be non-transparent, to be inauthentic. Um, I could go on and list a hundred other negative characteristics. And my gut tells me, we, you know, we know the story from Grant Palmer and Enzio Bushy and, and these men get a, a large sum of money up front to pay off things. Um, we, we know that they wanted it to be said that it was a lay ministry. And yet behind closed doors, they have a decent amount of income coming in. That's really nothing like a stipend, even though that's how they want to categorize it. At, at the end of the day, I struggle deeply to see these men collectively as good. There may be a good one or two in there, um, and maybe the church is going to make the move to getting rid of, as these guys die off, some of that uh, unethical, unhealthy um, perspective, and maybe they'll start calling in really good men and, and start to switch over to something different than what they are. But as currently constituted, these men collectively have a lot of unhealthy acts on their hands. Yeah, I think Sherry Dew may be overstating things. Uh, she seems to be positioning herself as a the next head of the PR department. By the way, Bill, can you go back to that video? I, it reminded me of a movie when you've got all those 12, 15 gentlemen walking around the plaza in Italy in their white suits. Can you play that? Oh, yeah. We, yeah, we can put it right back up on the screen. And hey, uh, Sherry. here we go. There they are. You are the ordained holders of priesthood keys that authorize the Lord's power to be distributed throughout the earth. The like richest men on earth. They may not be perfect. It's like the closing scene of Close Encounters. Their only motive is perfectly pure. Yeah, well, 
I think that um, she may be engaging in a bit of puffery. Huh. I'm sure. I'm sure she believes it. I'm sure she believes it. I, I at this point, I don't know. I mean, she's and, making a lot of money too. And by the way, this is part of the part of the problem is that the gentleman who she's talking about, okay, they know what's going on. They probably, if they were asked, would have to politely disagree with her about her high estimation of them, right? Who, who published yet, the video? And yet, these are the same guys, the same <laughs> gentlemen who are approving her saying these things about them. So it's okay yeah. if she says it about him. We're just not going to say it about ourselves because it comes across much better that way. That's its own problematic thing. Whose camera crew was that? Whose camera crew was that? Who wrote the script? <laughs> who who made the approval and let it go public? I don't know, but I think Spielberg was directing that scene because it really does look like the closing scene of Close Encounters. Do you know what I'm talking about, Bill? I've seen it. I don't. I don't remember. It was a long, long time ago. Oh, so, but you were laughing, so that was just like, I'm going to laugh because I'm I was laughing only now. because I know Close Encounters of the Third Kind is an alien movie, and I know that I've seen something like that before that, that had an alien uh, movie with the theme of everybody wearing uniforms that were white and, and, and the same. And so I, I think I know where we, you were going. Um, and yes, I, I'll have to go back and watch the movie, but I bet you nailed it. Yeah, they all come off the ship. It's up there on what Devil's Tower. You know, the, the door opens up. There's a bright light behind them. They all come walking up, and they're tall and skinny, and they grab Richard Dreyfus by the hand, and they take him for the ride of his life. Yeah, there you go. Um, nothing like Cocoon. <laughs> oh, no, no. I didn't really like Cocoon that much. Okay. Okay, so here we are at the end segment. Uh, folks, you can call us at 435-200-3478 or 435 200 fist and we'd love to take a few phone calls um i don't want to get in you're welcome if you you really think your story's credible and you can back it with some solid evidence i'm happy to hear a conspiracy theory but i want to stay away from us just having four or five phone calls that line up uh allegations that have no evidence uh caller you are on the line you're our first caller what's your name Hi, I'm Adrian. Adrian, you are on Mormonism Live with RFM and Bill Real. What's on your mind tonight? Uh, I just wanted to tell you guys that I think this last sort of avenue that you've taken looking into this stuff is pretty effective. I think that a lot of PBMs like really hide behind the like, well, they're just these great, nice grandfatherly men. What they are is is billionaires <laughs> or millionaires or whatever. Very wealthy white men who have been insulated from a lot of things for a long time and that often leads to bad behavior and i just think it's it's very effective to be like look these are just people they aren't the exception to the rule they're no different than the other people that are sailing on hundreds of billions of dollars and uh i just think that yeah, it's, yeah. I, to crack that facade is really important and i'll tell you i'm i'm making a lot of conjecture when I think that these men aren't great men and either the church scratches their back or they scratch the church's back, but they establish some degree of loyalty and indebtedness in one direction or the other. And these men get called into the 12 and these men, you know, we sometimes think I used to think as a member that these leaders would just be called out of nowhere because God would come in and go, you know, president Hinckley, you should call yep. Gary Jones from San Francisco Stake as the next member of the 70. But that's not what happens. These men 
come into contact with people and they're trying to figure out who they can trust. They call these men, Elder Razband, Elder Suarez, Elder Gong. These men get called into positions, whether they serve in leadership at one of the church schools, whether they serve as a member of the 70, uh, whether they serve as mission president, wherever it is, they have established through some way or means that the brethren can trust them to a greater extent to be loyal and to perpetuate the system over being honest, as RFM pointed out last week with Elder Christofferson, um, when, again, I'm not, I, I'm going to make conjecture here. When you take the 20,000 foot view, when you add up Grant Palmer's comment about um, Enzio Bushy, and, and maybe I'm saying, am I saying that name right, by the way, RFM? RFM? I think it would be Busha. Okay. Busha. German. Enzio Busha. Uh, him, yeah. the contract, the getting paid a million dollars up front to pay off all their debts, having to sign a non-disclosure form, which comes with a penalty, and it could easily be worked in that the penalty is that you have to pay back all the money you've just spent from the church that they just gave you. Um, and that your kids get benefits, your grandchildren get benefits, your wife gets benefits. When you add all that up, and I'll just add this in too, and I know I'm rambling RFM, um, Boyd K. Packer uh, was a CES teacher, correct? Thomas Monson worked for the Deseret News. Those don't sound like high paying jobs. And yet by the end of their life, there are people out there who've done the research. These men have three, four, five, six homes. They have a significant amount of wealth buildup. And for some of these men, I can't figure out where in the hell they got it. Um, when you add up the 20,000 foot view of contracts and getting money on the front end, not that I have any evidence of that, but I would say that it makes a whole hell of a lot of sense and all the parts and pieces seem to fall into place if you start with those assumptions. Anyway, just wanted to right. get that out. Yeah, I just think call a spade a spade. It's not like funny and cute that that all the apostles are related to some other apostle. It's let's call it nepotism. It's nepotism. Yeah. It's, it's keeping power in power. It's all that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the last thing these men want is to start turning over that quorum of the twelve to different a different gender, to different uh, races or ethnicities. They've only begun to do that. And you watch, it will happen so slowly because they have to find the right person that's still connected to them before they can call them. Sorry, Elder Dubay, right. you'll never be an apostle. Totally. Yeah. Thank you for the phone call. No problem. Bye-bye. Your thoughts, I know you're going to be much more conservative on that, but let me at least ask it this way, RFM. Um, when you take all of those subjective data points if they're true doesn't that allow the conclusion to make a whole lot more rational sense well uh, i just think that the the human mind is a remarkable thing for its ability to believe things in spite of acting in ways that would seem to be in tension with what it is we believe and so I think that's part of the human experience, isn't it? For anybody who has certain beliefs in religious tenets or non-religious tenets, that frequently you'll find yourself acting in opposition of what you believe to be true. It doesn't mean you don't believe it. It's just part of what we do as human beings. I would say, and I know you've got another call there, right, Bill? I would say, uh, Adrian, thanks for the uh, the phone call and for the, the support. Me... Yeah? Oh, you're okay. I just wanted to say that part of this dynamic, though, is that church leaders at the highest levels are not going to want to go public with any bad things that other leaders do because they feel it would hinder their effectiveness 
in the church. So they will hide things. And the classic example is Bruce R. McConkie as a 70 publishing a book titled Mormon Doctrine. And the apostles and the president of the church, David O. McKay, are just affronted by this idea that a 70 thinks he can write a book that sets forth authoritatively what Mormon doctrine is. He's called on the carpet. And the decision had to be made by President McKay. Are we going to announce this publicly? Because this is a very popular book. And it was in the 70s when I joined the church. And this is back in the 60s now that this is happening. Are we going to make this public and let everybody know who's bought this book? This does not represent the church's official position. And he was out of line. Bruce R. McConkie was out of line in doing it. And the decision was made. No, we're not going to do that. We're going to keep the members in the dark about what's going on in this closed door meeting because we don't want it to affect Bruce R. McConkie's abilities as a 70 to represent the church and do the church's work. So this is part of the rationale of keeping the members in, in the dark regarding the peccadilloes of church leaders is it's for the overall benefit of the church, the overall benefit of the members to keep them in the dark and to cover up for the misdeeds of the church leaders. Yeah. And I think Jay Golden Kimball nailed it too, when he talked about it isn't uh, revelation or inspiration, it's almost always relation. Yeah. Um, I, my recollection of the quote, and I think it's like a joke has different punchlines, right? Is that callings in the church are 10% revelation and 90% relation. Yeah. So our next caller, you're going to recognize this voice. It is the newest addition to Mormon Discussion Incorporated's lineup. It is the backyard professor himself, Carrie Schertz. Uh, Carrie, you are on Mormonism Live. What's on your mind? Hello, you two gentlemen. You, how are you? Doing great. Can you hear me, Carrie? To say what a terrific yeah. uh, video evening. This is my first Mormonism Live that I've been on, and I have to say, not only am I enjoying listening to YouTube, but I am loving talking to your chat audience. Your chat group is so fun and cool, all of them, man. Hello, everybody. Aren't they? Aren't they a smart group too? Yeah, I'm glad that I'm they, glad that oh. uh, they are beyond me. I I feel so. You know, I need to start learning some stuff to keep up with all you fabulous people. But I'm going to. I'm telling you. <laughs> I would suggest you start off with Radio Free Mormons Episode 1, work your way through that, then follow my journey on Mormon Discussion Incorporated, uh, Mormon Discussion Podcast, and then uh, work your way through all of those. And when that's all done, I think you'll, for the most part, have just about every egregious story discussed, uh, both contemporary and historical. There we go. Now that is a good idea. I will. Uh, I will try that. Yes, I've recognized several friends of mine on your chat. So yeah, and then I recognize two really good friends of mine on the video. I think that's uh, that balding guy, kind of the handsome one, and then the other handsome one with the hair and the, yeah, you two. So anyway, <laughs> I just wanted to call it. I don't think Bill's balding. How much fun this. This Mormonism Live is, and I also want to say hi to the chat audience and let them know, yes, I am thrilled to be a part of this, and I have a lot more videos and podcasts I will be doing also. They've kind of talked to me about it. So. Yeah, appreciate anyway, it. Yeah. And, oh, and they want me to tell RFM 
dude, you still have a second podcast to do with me, and they're getting ready to hang us by the neck if we don't. So I'm just saying, I'm just passing on. There's a bug in your ear, RFM. Okay, that's like Star Trek Two with the bug in the air, Chekhov, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that that got him doing some different things, didn't it? Oh yes. Yeah. All right, Carrie. Thank you so much, my friend. Check out uh, the Backyard Professor. His newest episode went up this morning, where he talks about praying to Heavenly Mother. You can see that on YouTube. Carrie, thanks so much. Thank you for all your hard work. Appreciate it. Take it easy, my friend. See you soon. Bye bye. All right, folks, uh, we'll take another phone call or two. Uh, love to know what your thoughts are on tonight's show. Um, I'm a big fan, RFM, by the way, of always trying to take the 20,000-foot view because the church and its apologists are always asking you to be laser-focused on one issue at a time, and I think it makes a big difference uh, when when you take uh, the bigger view. Caller, what's your name? Christian. Christian, you are on Mormonism Live. Would you mind just turning down your sound in the background? And uh, let us know okay. what you're thinking tonight. You're on with RFM and Bill Real. Love you guys. Uh, called in a couple times. Uh, and back to Professor is right. This has been one of the funniest uh, live chats we've ever had. Um, I don't know if RFM was noticing that we were all hoping that with his his guns out today, he would be doing some flexing for us. Man, his arms but, look uh, big. Don't they? Look at his arms. He, he looks, looks like fantastic. he works out. Yeah. Yeah. But honestly, that was some serious flexing some cognitive flexing that uh, you just did for all of us. And I'm telling you, I'm sitting here just stunned. And I have a fast question for you, Bill. Uh, How can we suggest a future podcast episode uh, for you guys? Love it. So my, my suggestion would be the best place for RFM and I both to see it would be to go on the Facebook group Mormonism Live and put it there. Um, and it. It, that would be the best spot. We'll see it. I will say it. And, and I want the audience to know this. We really deeply appreciate our listeners. RFM, I'll let you speak for yourself. I get tons of messages about what we should cover. And it's not that none of them are interesting. It's only that to be passionate about what him and I do. And again, I'll let you, maybe I kind of spoke for you, um, to be passionate about what I do and have done for the last 10 years. It really needs to start with me. And not that sometimes somebody throws out an idea and I go, oh, that's the one. I'm going to run with it. It's 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 that I do have to kind of get on board and feel excited about whatever it is. There have been lots of good topics suggested that I just haven't done yet because I just haven't felt passionate about it. And I think RFM, would you say the same thing? Yes, even though Christian can't hear me right now um, just because of the, the way things are wired. Uh, yeah, people do come to me with different ideas. I'm always appreciative of ideas. There, uh, I would say the majority of times, I don't go with those at least right away. There are some that have some shows we've done that have been uh, the product of things being suggested. So I do appreciate that very much. Um, I just wouldn't want anybody to feel badly if they suggest something that they think would be a good show. And then we don't end up Um, acting on that and making it into a show. We do appreciate all suggestions. We just can't act on all of them to put all of them into um, a show. Perfect. Yeah, mine is on Truman G. Truman G. Madsen. Truman G. Madsen series about Joseph Smith. Yeah, jump on. Yeah, jump on Mormonism Live Facebook page. Suggest it there and we'll give it a look. All right. Thank you, my friend. 
Was it was it about Truman G. Matson or something? It was something on Truman G. Matson. I unmuted him and he started to talk there. So we'll go to our final. If you want to just take one more, are you good with that? Yeah, Truman G. Matson. Love the guy. <laughs> I've got a signature on a letter, by the way. Great historian, by the way, right? Oh, he was a little <laughs> bit. I tell you, in his series about Joseph Smith, which was on audio tape and which I love to listen to, what a wonderful speaker, great speaker, uh, great guy, I think. Um, and very important, mostly in wedding philosophy with Mormonism. I think back in the 60s and early 70s, there were a series of books about that. But in this thing about Joseph Smith, the one statement he made that I remember was about Joseph Smith getting martyred in Carthage. And the thing that um, Truman G. Madsen said was that Joseph Smith gave his life in order to get the correct idea about God back into the world. Yeah, except that the lectures on faith are not quite used exactly the same anymore, are we? No, and I think that probably most historians would look at it and think, no, there were other things involved in Joseph Smith's death and his teachings about God. Yeah, at the end of the day, I think in 2021, Hugh Nibley is absolutely irrelevant, but I would say that he is a better Egyptologist than Truman Madsen was a historian. Ooh, yeah! wow. There's, we'll have to untangle that one. <laughs> All right, uh, Kirk, you are our final call for the night. You're on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. Uh, take us home, my friend. What's on your mind? Hey, uh, first, just wanted to say how awesome you guys are, how much I appreciate you guys. Um, so the bummer is usually you guys, I, I'm during, I'm on school every Wednesday, so I'm not able to listen to you very often, but I wanted to give a big shout out to uh, uh, RFM. So I was a sailor um, and that, uh, I was just listening this morning to his tales. Uh, I think he called, I think he titled it the tail, two tales or whale of a tail, I can't remember, but he talked about something that was the beginning moment of when I started realizing that they're not being very honest is when it actually had my mom give me a call and she's like hey i wanted to hear what you thought about this talk and uh a general conference it's about a sailor and ensign who walked around the boat and, and so she gave it to me and wanted me to give her a thought and i'm like mom this is completely wrong almost every aspect of this story was wrong and and i just loved hearing rfm and how well he went through it and how he talked to the experts because it is so blatantly wrong and it's just almost offensive to, you know, to hear a, a military story and, and have that said. So I just want to give him a big shout out and, and, and thank him for, for kind of going about that. Appreciate I, that. I love it. I'll just tell you, Kirk, there's, there's no way in hell any guys on the, the bridge of that ship in the middle of a monsoon somehow seeing the screws of that boat is there. <laughs> I know it's so funny when I when I'm listening to it and my mom god bless her I feel so bad because I, I think I hurt her feelings when I told her that it was like and she goes no he was in the audience this ensign was in the audience and well I'm like okay mom I, hey whatever you want to think but anyway yeah it, it is so wrong on every level a captain going down and talking <laughs> Oh, it's so funny. Like everything is just comical at that point. Ensign Blair. Ensign Blair is the hero of his own story. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's awesome. Anyway, I just wanted to give him a a big shout out. I appreciated him. uh, Yeah, thank you, my friend. So for the listeners, that was Whale of a Tale in part one and Whale of a Tale part two. And in the middle of those two episodes, 
I had written the general authority who gave that talk and he wrote me back and said, oh, I know this man. There's just it's absolutely true. I'm sure of it. I, I don't know why there's some confusion here, but it's absolutely true. And so you did an episode two where you shared some of the data that you had gotten back from people who had served on ships like this. And you shared the message from the from the member of the 70, which I'm sure he was spoken to by someone inside the church immediately after and said, you just do not want to be talking to this Bill Real or Radio Free Mormon guy. It isn't going to go well. But I remember drawing the picture of that one, RFM, and you ended up using the picture in the episode uh, and we put it in the show notes. But I just drew like a stick figure, like hanging off with these giant waves. And he's trying to see the screws of the boat because we've got a picture of the boat and the screws are underneath the boat. You, <laughs> By the way, screws are propellers, just yeah, so everybody knows. Propellers. And this guy in a monsoon with, I don't know what he said, 40, 50, 60-foot waves, <laughs> went out on the bridge by himself because the captain trusted On the deck. Speech. Yeah, and because of his uh, spiritual promptings and the captain trusting him. <laughs> We're in the middle of a monsoon. Tell you what, let's put Ensign Blair out there on the deck. <laughs> Something we'll tie a rope around him so nothing bad can happen. <laughs> tells me that captain was willing to lose at least one crew member. <laughs> oh my gosh, what a pain in the ass that Mormon Ensign must have been. Just let him get, go. Put him out on the deck. Fall overboard. So anyway, I'm going to hang up with that call. It was great, it was great that Kirk called. I know you've got a call coming. It's great that Kirk called because you know we sang the song that Kirk Douglas sang in uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Remember how it goes, Bill? I, I don't. I only remember That's where the title um, came from. I only remember Gordon Lightfoot in the Edmund Fitzgerald was oh, originally at the beginning. <laughs> yes, haunting, absolutely haunting. I love that part. Um, here it goes. Just what? Just what? Right, one verse, right? Okay. Got a whale of a tale to tell you, lads. A whale of a tale or two about the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. He's playing a guitar. A whale of a tale, and it's all true. I swear by my tattoo. <laughs> whale of a tale, which by the Great way, moments in was- cinema. Somebody was criticizing either you or me, or I think it probably had to be you because you explained it. Uh, somebody criticized your use of the word curioser or curious. Oh, curioser. curioser. Yeah, there's actually somebody somewhere in the internet who listened to a listened to a podcast. I don't even remember which one it was. And I don't it says either, underneath that it, it says is their comment was curioser is not a word. Sir. Right. And it was that was episode. the entirety of their comment. It was an episode where you had laid out deeply the dysfunction of the church, and that's all he took away. And, and in reality, you actually had taken the word. That was your comment. That, so that's your takeaway from the entire episode. Is it curious or <laughs> is it a word? You used a word that doesn't exist. I think every well, I think most people in the audience tonight know where that comes from because it's kind of a famous quote from kind of a famous book, and it's about a chick named Alice, and she's in like through the looking glass, and she says, curiouser and curiouser. And that's exactly what I said. So I was actually quoting literature rather than creating a new word that doesn't exist. Yeah, you can you can pick on Bill Real and you can find a word that I use that's not the right word. I'm I'm definitely doing that. But before you accuse RFM of doing that, you ought to read maybe some great classic literature and see if you find it first. <laughs> I thought it was obvious, but but you know, I can say burning game all day long, apparently, when it's burning ham. So I uh <laughs> I am subject to the frailties. We all memory. make mistakes, but remember, our, our motives are pure, too. There's Tom Marsh. Tom Marsh knows about Curious, sir. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's finish with a little word um, from our good old friend who we haven't used in a while, uh, Boyd. 
Kenneth uh, Packer. It is uh, so easy to be turned about without realizing. It. That wasn't the one I was looking for. Let me see if I can. Here we go. It's that this sounded one. just like Boyd Packer. It, it was, that was. And we brought him back from the dead. Uh, here's the one I was looking for. Mormonism live. Better than touching your own little factory. 